Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. 3CR would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nations, true owners, caretakers and custodians of the land from which we broadcast. 3CR pays respect to elders, past and present of the Kulin Nation. We recognise their unceded sovereignty. It's provided. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Welcome to Tuesday Breakfast. You're listening to myself, Jan, and across from me, we have George. Good morning. And Lauren. Good morning. Um, I'm not sure if you guys heard that little um, slip up, um, but we we've, do apologize. We've had a couple. Well, we've had a couple. That's that's me being generous, pretending like this is our first time as well. Um, but I feel like it adds a certain character to our show. Yeah, mm. definitely. The, the excitement of live radio. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so April 7th is the International Day of Reflection on the 1994 genocide against the Tutsi in Rwanda. This day originally didn't specify the Tutsi people in the title, but on January, January 28th of this year, it was changed to include Tutsis in the title. Valentine Ragwabiza, who is Rwanda's permanent representative to the UN, said in a speech to the UN Assembly, the text captures the historical facts of what happened in 1994, which is the genocide against the Tutsis in Rwanda and leaves no room for ambiguity. If you'd like to know more about about why this title was changed, check out the article UN Adopts Correction on Appalachian Genocide Against the Tutsis. We'll share it on our Facebook page as well as our 3CR page. So, mm. um, holidays. I think we're all... I'm still in holiday mode. I know. I'm having a sugar come down. My mum went hectic on the Easter eggs this year. <laughs> so, thanks, mum. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so it was nice. I mean, I got back from Rye, and I was telling the girls the first thing that you do. I mean, I do, and I know a lot of <laughs> black people do. Is you look around, you're like, where are the black people? Because mm. as I said earlier, you know, you want to make sure it's not a get out situation. You're like, <laughs> is, is, are we okay here? Is everybody alive? Is everybody fine? Um, but yes, and you were okay. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah. I, w- I mean, we did survive. Mm-hmm. I mean, um, we had a few funny looks and there was a lifeguard who was really nice but he wanted to know if we were part of like a refugee group which is I mean he was being nice it was his like conversation starter I know he was this is me being PC right and trust me on my Twitter I I will go ham (laughs) but I'm just like okay so you're doing too much Mm -hmm. we're just here to enjoy the beach (laughs) Um, so you can just continue saving people Um, Side note, did you enjoy the beach? I did. They have such beautiful beaches. Yeah, and, and the locals are actually really nice. They mind their own business. They stay in their own lane. There was no, like, it didn't feel like there was a lot of surveillance. Mm. Um, so, yeah, so it, I mean, it, it was a beautiful place. The house that we lived in was really nice. So, That's I'm cool. happy. <laughs> mm, sounds good. 
So we've got a pretty stellar show lined up uh, for today. Lauren, who have we got first up? Um, Sonia Law, who is the manager of the Mental Health and Disability Advocacy Program at Victoria Legal Aid, will be gracing us in the studio with her presence um, to discuss Legal Aid's ongoing advocacy work related to the NDIS. And then, George. So a few days ago, on March 31st, it was International Transgender, Transgender Day of Visibility. Uh, which is an annual event dedicated to celebrating transgender people and raising awareness of discrimination faced by transgender people worldwide. So we have got a few uh, interviews coming up in today's program that address trans politics and trans rights. The first is with Lee Carney, who is a lawyer at the Human Rights Law Centre, about some reforms to marriage equality in Victoria, which is quite interesting. The second interview that we're going to have is with Nick Carson, who is a genderqueer, Transfem educator in NAM about a workshop that she just ran a few weeks ago about constructing and deconstructing gender in education and what we can do to dismantle oppressive gender systems in the classroom, which is super oh interesting. Gosh. And the mm. educator in you is loving this interview already, huh? <laughs> yes, <laughs> I'm very excited so about this one. right now. <laughs> Amazing. And then after that? Yeah, at 7.50 we have Eric Lai. Eric Lai is a RISE member and is the support services and food bank coordinator at RISE. And we will be chatting to him about the government's plan to cut income support from asylum seekers, which is gross mm. and cruel. So, um, yeah, so we're just going to ask him how, how that will work, when it starts, who will be most at risk. So it will be good to... To find out what's happening on that Definitely. issue. And um, we'll start with some news headlines, maybe. Yeah. It, uh, well, this isn't really a headline, but I was just going to mention the weather. It's uh, 21 degrees today, or going to be. It's I'm currently so 14. <laughs> I'm trying to load that, and it's just not working for me. So 21 today, currently yes, 14. that's right. Love it. All right, so news headlines. The Guardian has reported that Nauru has terminated an arrangement with the Australian High Court that has allowed refugees to appeal. Australia has been notified of the termination since December last year. This will have a significant impact on the rights of asylum seekers in detention on Nauru. Since the agreement has been in place to allow asylum seekers the right to appeal the rejection of their refugee status, there have been 16 appeals by the High Court since the arrangement was put in place in 1976, and eight of them had led to individuals being granted refugee status. There were 13 appeals alone in 2017, according to Melbourne University law professor Jeremy Gans. 1,000 asylum seekers remain on, det- on detention in Nauru. UNHCR Director for Asia and the Pacific, Indrika Ratwate, has said that refugees on Nauru should be prioritised, as places should be preserved for those who are truly vulnerable and in need of protection and a solution, as opposed to offering migration to white South African farmers. The UN and EU are calling for an inquiry into the recent conflict and death of at least 15 Palestinians on the Gaza frontier. Peaceful protests last week turned violent with Israeli troops shooting at protesters. Hundreds of Palestinians have been admitted to hospital. Advigdor Lieberman, the Israeli defence minister, told public, public radio that there will be no inquiry and that from the standpoint of the Israeli defence force, they did what had to be done. And he added that I think that all of our troops deserve a commendation. Israel is accusing Hamas of using violent riots to camouflage terror. Turkey's president, Erdogan, has named Netanyahu a terrorist. The Israeli Prime Minister tweeted that they will not be lectured by those who have indiscriminately bombed civilian populations for years, in reference to Turkey. The demonstrations are a part of the Great March of Return, a six-week protest to call for Palestinian refugees to be allowed back to their homes in Israel. um, They have been split into two groups of women and children at a distance from the border and young men close to the fence throwing rocks and light bottles of petrol. 
There are no reports of Israeli casualties. Israel has claimed 10 of the dead are from Hamas, and Hamas has said only five of its members have been killed. Trump has announced that a deal to secure the status for DACA uh, recipients, which stands for Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals, is no more in a push for tougher immigration laws. The president also accused Mexico of laughing at our dumb immigration laws, adding they must stop the big drugs and people flows, or I will stop their cash cow and have to need wall. That's a damn Twitter post. Jesus. Yeah. It's a nightmare. Um, and I'll just add on to that. We've just, um, we've just opened up the newspaper, um, and there's a pretty horrific front page of The Age today. Um, yeah. It's um, an expose by Nick McKenzie, um, part one of a special series on police brutality. So he's examining disturbing incidents of officers using exas- excessive force um, and looking at the difficulty of having such attacks properly investigated. Mm. And I thought it was worth a mention because we have interviewed people from the Police Accountability Project a few times on this program. So um, if anybody has any stories that they feel like they need to bring up in light of these recent investigations, please get in touch with the Police Accountability Project. Um, you can call them at 9376-4355 um, or you can just Google Police Accountability and their website will come up. Mm. And just in terms of the reporting on that story, I'm quite disturbed by it really demonstrates the tabloidization of news because it, they're making it into this dramatic, um, like the age has, mm. made it into a really dramatised and sensationalised story, which I think is really um, kind of insulting for the people involved. Mm. And, and when sensationalised... See, this is what I'm worried about. Once, when, when it's the okay. So what I'm trying to say is, I'm scared that they won't focus on the structures. It would be this might turn into these four mm. um, police officers who were um, in this situation. That it might become an issue about them as yeah, opposed definitely. to what's happening with the the police force and. You know, even the idea that do we always need the police when it comes to, you know, when someone is having like a mental health crisis, like, or, or, you know, local communities, because I know my local community, we don't always go to the police. Mm -hmm. So even, you know, rethinking the purpose of police, but right now on the paper, like, I'm happy that he's doing it and it's important, but like George said, yeah, I mean, I think to Nick McKenzie's credit, I just had a flick through the article, and I think he does mention the stuff that, like, that we've also focused mm. on in the program um, about the fact that referrals to IBAC tend to go nowhere, and that um, generally things are pushed back to the police to be investigating themselves, and that there's a really low rate of um, confirmation that complaints are legitimate and that sort of thing, which are structural issues with the police. Mm. But I definitely think you're right, George, and that this gives some people something easy to grab onto. Yes, it's the commercial imperative that means yeah. that Ooh. whilst they might be, ha- you know, they might feel a pressure to present stories in a particular way because mm. they're competing with the Daily Mail and the Herald Sun, um, and whilst they might have good content in there, it is it's just disappointing to see. Onto. Yeah, and it's disappointing that that is the game that you have to play in journalism to mm. actually get people to tune into something and the age has just become more and more and more like that in the last mm-hmm. two years. You should take this into um, <laughs> George Tudors in journalism at Monash for <laughs> anybody <laughs> listening. So you should take this in and you can chat to your students. Yeah, absolutely. It's a good example. You've got one of the best teachers. <laughs> <laughs> we might jump to some community announcements before we head back for our first interview of the day. Language warning. Oh, won't somebody please think of the children? Why do you reckon people should subscribe to 3CR? 
because I think we have more awesome music shows than anywhere else. And they're niche and they're interesting and they're adventurous. Basically, the perfect companion in your car on your road trip. If you're on digital, mm. no tram interference. Mm. But if you're streaming, there's no tram interference. No. That's true. But if you like correct interference is always the AM. The AM, old school. <laughs> oh, like, oh. You know, some people like to crack along vinyl. Well, yeah. some, some people like noise music. Experimental mm-hmm. noise music. Mm-hmm. To subscribe to 3CR, unwaged is $35. Yes. yes. Waged? 75 And solidarity? One fifty. One fifty. That's pretty reasonable to help keep 3CR on air. Call 3CR 94198377 and subscribe. Subscribe today. Subscribe now. You got to remember, Nanox is a special day for us, fellas. As a reminder, who we are. Every year for NAIDOC Week, 3CR Community Radio gives voice to our Indigenous brothers and sisters through Beyond the Bars, Australia's only live prison broadcast. I am a black, black man. NAIDOC means a lot to me, it's about identity and also about past and present. NAIDOC means a lot to me for my family and my people. And the people forgetting about our rights. You can access audio from current and past Beyond the Bars broadcasts via the 3CR website. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash beyond the bars and either listen to or download audio from Australia's only live prison broadcasts. Happy NAIDOC! Welcome back to Tuesday Breakfast on 3CR. It is April the 3rd and we are in the studio live with Sonia Law, who is the manager of the Mental Health and Disability Advocacy Program at Victoria Legal Aid. Thank you for joining us, Sonia. Thanks, Lauren. Um, So Victoria Legal Aid recently made a submission to the Joint Standing Committee on the NDIS inquiry into the market readiness of the National Disability Insurance Scheme. It's a pretty shocking read. Um, Can you start by giving us an overview of VLA's key points from the submission? Yeah, the main focus of our submission is really the cases that we're seeing at Legal Aid of people who have been funded by NDIS to receive certain kinds of support but just are unable to get that support because there aren't services available that can deliver those um, services to them. And what's shocking, I think, about it is the impact that we see on people who are quite vulnerable through that lack of services. So we see people who have um, ended up in more restrictive environments, like stuck in prison because they can't get support in their homes to get out of jail, or people who are stuck in mental health services because they, they can't get that support in the community, or people who are really bearing the brunt of that, those delivering those services themselves for their families. Mm. And um, what's been frustrating for us, I suppose, is um, that there's, it's not clear who's responsible to fill that gap, no one's actually obliged to deliver the services that NDIS says you're entitled to when you apply. Mm. So they've just got to set up the framework and hope that the services somehow exist separately, is that sort of the... Yeah, so the theory of NDIS is to create a market. Mm -hmm. So one of the frustrations, I suppose, long-term for people who have disability seeking services is that they're sort of required to fit into an existing service model. And the idea of NDIS, which is quite a good intention, is to put that money in the hands of the person themselves Mm -hmm. and they can then purchase the service that they know 
um, meets their needs. But NDIA is not taking an active role in creating those services. Mm. The theory is that the market will provide those services once you give people funding. Trickle-down economics really (laughs) has no place in disability services at the best of times. Um, So... So as a result of those failures, like you've said, you're seeing people remaining in prolonged custody in prisons and um, not being discharged from psychiatric wards. So is that that's a failure of those services to be there when they get out or it's a failure of, is there not adequate case management? Like how does this happen? Yeah, so case management's a really interesting part of this system. Mm. So I suppose that the way the NDIS is set up, it recognises that there will need to be someone there to coordinate those things for people, particularly people who have complex or high level needs. So they have a thing called specialist support coordination. Mm-hmm. So you can be funded for specialist support coordination and then that specialist support coordinator then goes out and finds the services that you need. But what what we're seeing is because that's a new system, there aren't enough specialist support coordinators. Some of them don't really understand the system well enough. So even though, um, so we've got a fellow called Francis, a young guy who spent about six months in jail as a result of his disability support provider walking away at the point when he was arrested. And he had a specialist support coordinator funded there Uh, ready to find those services for him but just couldn't find them. Mm. Some of the people we've seen haven't have had a have had funding for a special specialist support coordinator but haven't been able to find a specialist support coordinator so they can't even uh, get hold of that gateway that entry into the system. Mm. Now while we were advocating for Francis over a period of many months the NDIA didn't see it as their role to make sure that he had a specialist support coordinator and make sure that the services that he needed to buy through that coordinator were there for him. So they're taking a really passive role and expecting the market to fill that gap. So, gosh. Um, all right. Something that um, you, or Legal Aid, advocated strongly for in both the November 2017 and March 2018 submissions to the Joint Standing Committee on the NDIS has been for a funder of last resort. And can you tell us what that means and why it's so important? Yeah, so the term that's used in those um, documents is provider of last resort, and that's that notion that um, if there's nothing there, someone will be responsible ultimately to provide that service. So one of the really frustrating things about this system is that there's no one you can say, okay, you're the person and that person steps in at a state or Commonwealth level. So the NDIA founding documents recognise that need, that there will be a need for a provider of last resort for people in the system who can't find what they need, Mm. but no one is ultimately responsible to provide that in Victoria at the moment. So we say that that's necessary for people who are perhaps unattractive to service providers because they have challenging needs or their needs are very specialised. But also in times of crisis, like when Francis was arrested and his support provider walked away, we spent months negotiating, trying to advocate for him with the NDIA and the Disability Services Department in Victoria. And he's ultimately got a package of services because the department in Victoria was prepared to say they held responsibility for him Mm. during that transition period. But once transition's finished, it's unclear at this stage who would be ultimately responsible to provide services in a crisis like that. Mm. And we're really talking about people who are quite vulnerable. One of the difficult things about it is when we look at Francis and his situation in custody, we can see him going backwards. Like we see that his needs are greater having spent six months in custody Mm. than they were before. So it's really even at a pure economic efficiency level, even apart from the human damage level, um, we see that it's really counter to the 
what the scheme's trying to do. And so I'm just wondering, listening to you now, are there issues then in terms of the NDIS is obviously a federal scheme, um, but healthcare and um, those sorts of things are state provide. Is there some issues there in terms of organisation between those two levels as well? Yeah, absolutely. So mm. all the places where the um, NDIS intersects with existing mainstream services, particularly those provided by a different level of government, we're seeing issues. Mm. That's so in the health system, the justice system, the education system, the aged care system. So those interfaces are still developing. Okay. So we're really relieved to see the State Disability Services Department take responsibility for um, creating a, a ramp between those two things at this point and hoping that um, that will help that at that end of that transition. But we know that all those intersections are quite complex. Mm. And so something else um, that the Joint Standing Committee have said they'll look at and something that VLA has addressed um, is the ability of the NDIS system to address what they refer to as thin markets, which are markets with a low number of buyers and sellers, so a low number of transactions. I was interested to read about them so frequently in this literature because it's not something I'd heard of before. Um, But where do you see these thin markets and why is it important that the NDIS addresses them? Yeah, so coming back to this, policy intention of NDIS, which is all about a market system, which of itself is not a bad thing um, in terms of giving power to purchasers. But the NDIS policy documents always recognise that there'd be some areas of thin markets. And we see it a lot in Australia, really, because we've got a very dispersed population. So we often see in rural and remote areas Mm -hmm. the need for government intervention to make sure that there's services provided to those people. So in NDIS, the recognised areas of thin markets are really rural and remote and and regional um, areas. The people with complex needs or high level of needs are culturally and linguistically diverse communities and Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander communities. So it's interesting that in the Northern Territory, that's one area where there's actually been some work done on provider of last resort, perhaps in recognition of the fact that you've got some very vulnerable, dispersed people with particular needs in that area. But they're the areas of thin markets, and the NDIS really needs to address those areas if the scheme's going to work. So if the scheme's going to deliver to the people who need it, that needs to be recognised and understood. And there are different ways of doing that. It might be by... um, I think NDIA probably thinks that the market will mature Mm. and that some of those services will come into being with time, and, and that might be right. But we always have known, or there's always been identified, that people with complex needs would be a thin market. And we know that while that's not in place, while that's, that's continuing to be the case, people are really being harmed mm. by the lack of services. And so where to from here with the Joint Standing Committee's inquiry? What will happen next, do you think? So the Joint Standing Committee's been in place since 2016, really recognising that Parliament wants to keep an eye on this scheme. Mm-hmm. It's a huge scheme that affects lots of people. Uh, and they've got a general inquiry going on around how the NDIS is going, but also this market readiness inquiry, which is really about these issues, like whether people have services. Mm-hmm. So they've just closed their written submissions, and there'll be some public hearings starting in mid-April in WA, and then they're due to report in August of this year. Okay. Beautiful. And I'll just finally ask you, um, this question is a bit more just bit broader than, um, I guess, the inquiry, but why is it so important to a provider of legal services like Legal Aid that disability service providers operate well? well I, can, I think we can see <laughs> why the, um, that Legal Aid is obviously a legal service provider, but what we're seeing is that our role to get a person a certain legal outcome that would usually be 
um, what they would get is being stymied really by those disability service system failures. Mm. So someone who would usually get bail doesn't get bail, mm. not because of criminal justice considerations, but because services aren't there for them. And it's the same with mental health. So lawyers in my team do a lot of work advocating for people in the mental health tribunal. You can only remain as an, as an involuntary patient in a mental health service where certain legal criteria are met. But that's being overwhelmed by the fact that there's no services available in the community for that person to receive support in their home mm. rather than in a restrictive environment. And I guess we always know at Legal Aid, it's a cliche to say it, that there are more people who need legal assistance mm. than get it. That's a constant that we see. But what we're doing at the moment is investing a whole lot of our legal assistance resources in advocating for people in a system that really shouldn't need that to happen. It's a system that's for often the most vulnerable in our community. Mm. A lot of those people can't advocate for themselves. So we're trying, I suppose, at a systemic level to advocate for that, to improve that system. Mm. Fantastic. Um, thank you so much for joining us today, Sonia. That was really interesting and um, all the best. I hope that they listen to you about the provider of last resort and yeah, everything else. it be great to see some action. Mm, thank you. Hi, I'm Maurice. And I'm Mario. And we're Chronically, Chronically Chilled. Chilled. A program that aims to provide a platform to those living with chronic and invisible illness, as well as exploring topics that impact on our daily lives. Listen to Chronically Chilled, the first Wednesday of every month at 6pm. information on health and housing services, as well as live local guests, artists and performers from our unsung community. Join us at 12pm on Thursday on 3CR 855am. You're listening to Tuesday Breakfast at 3CR with myself, George, Ayan, Lauren and Anya. Um, So I've been busting to play this track uh, for about a week now. I I think I played eBay last week, but later that day I was listening to some more of their music and this song came up. It's called No Man Is Big Enough For My Arms and it samples a speech uh, given by Michelle Obama. Them, 
They should make their voices heard in the world. The measure of any society is how it treats its women and girls. No man in the world. So that was Ibei with No Man Is Big Enough For My Arms. Uh, we need more songs that sample political speeches. Yes, unless they go the way of Beyonce's Flawless, sampling Chimamanda, oh. who then turns out to be a transphobe. Yes. So, like, Slightly yes, problematic. but yeah. <laughs> Depends no on No shade to Beyonce, is. I love Beyonce. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so on the line we have Lee Carney. Lee is a lawyer at the Human Rights Law Centre and advocates for better human rights protections and an end to legal discrimination against LGBTI people. Last year they provided legal support to the Marriage Equality Yes campaign the High Court challenge to the Postal Survey, and the Reed-Kelvin test case, which removed unnecessary court involvement in trans teenagers accessing stage 2 hormone treatment across Australia. Thanks for joining us this morning, Lee. Thanks so much for having me on. (laughs) So the Human Rights Law Centre recently reported that we might be seeing some reforms to marriage equality for trans people. Can you tell us a little bit about these reforms? Absolutely. So the Victorian government introduced a bill last week that would essentially remove the requirement that a trans or gender diverse person has to be unmarried to change the sex marker on their birth certificate. So what this means is um, you would no longer have to choose between being married to the person that you love um, and being legally recognised for who you are. Right. It's it's an extremely strange rule that it's just hard to understand why, why there's something like that in place. It's very interesting, actually, because it was retrofitted, so it wasn't in the original birth certificate scheme generally. But after the definition of marriage was amended federally to be, you know, marriage is the union of a man and a woman, to the exclusion of all others, essentially all of the states and territories then passed these um, provisions that said that you couldn't be unmarried because they were worried about people essentially changing the sex marker on their birth certificate as a backdoor way to try and get marriage equality. Right, I see. Uh, and it's just, it's just so frustrating because then people are having to choose between their marriage and then being recognised in their true gender. Exactly. So, you know, it's something that is incredibly unfair, that um, makes people choose. It's an impossible choice between mm. two parts of yourself, really. Um, and we often say that it's a choice, but in reality... Um, in order to get a divorce, you have to swear or affirm that you have what's called irreconcilable differences between you and your spouse. So you and you know your spouse love each other and you want to stay married, but mm. you also want to be legally recognised for who you are. You actually have to perjure yourself. You have to you know, lie on your affidavit in order to be able to get a divorce. Well, so it put people in a really difficult legal position. Yeah, absolutely. And hopefully, if the bill passes, that will change. Yeah, absolutely. And is it also true that you have had to had surgery to change the gender on your birth certificate? That's true. So in Victoria, you have to prove that you've had surgery on your reproductive organs. That's what the Act says. Mm-hmm. Um, at the end of 2016, the Victorian government brought forward a bill that would remove a number of these barriers to trans and gender diverse people and intersex people being able to change the sex, the legal sex that's on their birth certificate. But unfortunately, that was blocked in the upper house by the coalition and the crossbench. And it was by one vote, is that right? Yeah, it was by one vote. Oh, um, so frustrating. It's, it's incredibly frustrating and it was it's so heartbreaking for the many um, advocates who were there in the chamber who had to listen to a really horrible 
debate that peddled all of these myths about who they were and mm. the lives that they led. Um, and then at the end of it, to then see the bill defeated um, was a huge blow um, to the community. Um, and that's part, one of the reasons why the bill um, that's going forward only removes that provision. There's what's called a standing order. It's a procedural rule in the Victorian government that says that you can't bring a bill that's substantially the same as a previous bill that you've brought within the same session of parliament um, unless there's a change of circumstances. So because um, the marriage equality bill passed federally last year, what, one of the things that that did was that removed an exemption from the Federal Sex Discrimination Act that said that state and territory governments could have this unmarried requirement. So on the 9th of December, that will be removed from the Sex Discrimination Act, which means that now the Victorian government and all the other state and territory governments that have this rule need to remove it before then or, or then or leave themselves open to a legal challenge. So, you know, we've been telling everyone that, you know, on the 10th of December, if they haven't removed this rule, we'll happily see them in court. Wow. So it's because of marriage equality passing that this can be addressed again. Is that right? Exactly. Right. Because there's a change in circumstance. So if they didn't pass this rule, then on the 10th of December, they would leave the Victorian government open to litigation, open to a legal challenge. Wow. It's so interesting. It's quite complicated, so it's really good to get that understanding. Um, and it's also really, yeah, it's just really horrible that, that um, the rejection of that bill really plays on uh, these assumptions that all trans people will inevitably be having surgery, and that's really limiting in terms of the trans experience. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, this is something that causes huge, um, you know, huge practical difficulties in everyday life because you can obviously change your passport and your federal identity documents, but not your state-based ones. So then you have this issue with, you know, centrally data mismatching where your payments get cut or where you have difficulties having enough points of ID to prove that you are mm. who you are. And, um, you know, if you have to present your ID, then having to out yourself. But there's lots of practical difficulties. Mm. Um, there's other issues um, with how birth certificates are dealt with in Victoria that um, the bill would have addressed as well. Like currently, you can only change the sex marker on your birth certificate if you're over 18, um, and you can only change it to male or female. There's no options for people who are gender diverse or gender queer or have non-binary gender identities. Um, and so there's, you know, all of these other issues with it as well um, that you know, we would like to see addressed um, and that, you know, the community has been calling on, but unfortunately um, the Victorian government can't, deal, can't essentially bring forward the same bill that's already been defeated mm. again. So does that mean that in the coming months or in the next year they will tackle uh, those issues in terms of um, restrictions for non-binary people and their birth certificates? So at this stage we've got an election coming up in November so at this stage, um, the, what we're all doing and what I would really encourage listeners to do is if this is something that you care about, that you're passionate about, to approach your local member and talk to them about um, committing to resolving some of these issues and dealing with these issues in the next election. After the next election, sorry. Yeah. So if there are solid election commitments to deal with this later, um, then maybe it's something that we can see addressed the next term of Parliament, seeing who gets in then. Right, yep, absolutely. So perhaps we can put some info about that on our Facebook page if people do want to follow that up. Um, and does it mean that these rules and laws differ state by state? And, and if so, how do the laws in Victoria compare to other states across Australia? It does mean that. So um, the ACT in South Australia has removed um, most of these restrictions from their law. So in both of those states, you don't need to get surgery. You um, think you need to apply to a court if you're under 18 to change the sex marker and get a court order, but you can't do it. 
Um, and there's recognition of categories outside of male and female, but a limited number of categories. Um, and they've also removed the unmarried requirement that we spoke about. So South Australia and the ACC have the best first two. Wow, yeah, yeah. Um, in, yeah, in uh, Western Australia, you don't... Um, yeah, uh, they have a very different system. So all the other states and territories have slight differences, but they're kind of similar to Victoria in that there are still these barriers. Mm-hmm. That's, in, that's good to see that there are some states and territories that are, uh, you know, at least a little bit more progressive than Victoria, but it still sounds, sounds like there's a lot of work that needs to be done. Yeah, and Western Australia and Queensland are both conducting reviews into their birth certificate laws at the moment because they've committed to change this unmarried requirement and now they're saying, okay, well, let's look at the birth certificate laws more generally and see if there's anything else that we should change. So the... Uh, the, the Queensland submission is due on Wednesday. If you have any strong opinions, and the Western Australia one should hopefully open for submission soon. Mm-hmm. And you mentioned so you mentioned that for um, gender fluid people or non-binary people, they can't. Um, it's difficult for them to change their birth certificate. Are there any other changes that you think need to be made in the law in terms of uh, trans rights in Victoria? That's a very good question. Um, <laughs> So we saw recently, obviously we had the Re-Kelvin case um, that we were involved in last year, um, which removed that requirement that trans teenagers had to go to court. I think that there are definitely some other things that we could do to um, better protect trans rights, but some of them are legal, for example, protections from hate speech, um, and some mm. of them are not legislative, they're more policy-based, so improving access to healthcare um, and not requiring a person to essentially... Um, go through um, a medical diagnosis process in order to, you know, um, affirm their gender. So uh, having having it based on kind of how you um, self-affirmation or um, having it based on um, who you are and that you are the best person to say what your gender is, not other people. Mm-hmm. Um, so not requiring that in order for you to prove who you are that you have to, for example, get stat decks from your doctors saying that you are who you are and you have the diagnosis of gender dysphoria and all of these things that pathologise being trans. Yep, and that's a, yeah, that's a really good point you mentioned in terms of healthcare and access to healthcare and some of the changes in the discrimination that takes place in that area. Uh, thank you so much, Lee, for your time. It's really great, I think, for someone like myself and I'm sure a lot of our listeners as well who don't have uh, much understanding of the law to kind of get, a, get a, a sense of what's going on, and particularly since we have had marriage equality, but there are a lot of things that still need to happen and keeping the m- momentum going with that. So thank you for your time this morning. Okay, good luck with the rest of your show. Cheers. Guatemala, I'm Black Betty, and you can join me for Black Noise Radio each Thursday from 2 to 3 p.m. Join me each week as I serve you up a deadly fine offering of all things black as we explore black Australia and everything fabulous it has on the offer. We'll check out and see what's making black news locally and from right around Australia. And we'll explore all things Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander and the deadly solid culture and people with a look at community news, views, music, culture and the arts. Hope you can join me for Black Noise Radio featuring black news, views, current affairs, music, culture and the arts from an Aboriginal woman's perspective. That's me, Black Betty. I'll see you Thursdays at 2. So you're listening to Tuesday Brekkie. If you just tuned in, we did just have an interview with Lee Carney, a lawyer at the Human Rights Law Centre, about some changes to 
marriage equality, some reforms that will hopefully uh, result in more equal um, things around marriage for trans people. Sorry. So I just... Oh, so annoying. I just got a new phone and it doesn't have a headphone jack and I was going to play some music but I couldn't work out how to get it in so <laughs> excuse me trying to fuss with my computer. Um, yes, I did want to mention that starting tomorrow um, 3CR is going to have daily coverage of the Stolen Wealth Games. So for people who don't know, um, the Commonwealth Games is happening again this year in April in Brisbane. Um, and so, gosh, when was the first one? 2008? Okay, shaking your head at me. Um, so basically, um, the Stolen Wealth Games, hold on, I'll just, George is shaking your head at me. Um, I don't have an answer, I'm sorry. No, 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 that's fine, that's fine. I should have been a little better prepared. Um, there is a big contingent of people from all around the country going up to Brisbane, um, basically to um, protest the ongoing British imperialism, but the ongoing theft of Indigenous land and the fact that the Australian government um, and Australian businesses and those sorts of things will be profiting from the use of Aboriginal land um, and they are calling for, in conjunction with many other um, community groups, including Rise Refugee, who will be coming in today, um, for a boycott of the stolen of the Commonwealth Games, and it's referred to as the Stolen Wealth Games. The third third one, I believe. Third one. Yeah. Thank you. Um, and so, starting from tomorrow, I think at eight fifteen every morning, or between eight and eight fifteen every morning, breakfast shows are going to have a live cross to um, reporting from the Stolen Wealth Games, and there'll be specials throughout the week um, coming. So keep an eye on 3CR's Facebook page and Twitter page for updates um, and you can follow along um, Yeah, and find out what's happening. And now we will go to a song. Um, we will play... I think we should hear Scales by Solange featuring Kalila. Yes. Very That's nice a beautiful pick. song. Angel. That is Solange Knowles with Scales featuring Kalila from her album A Seat at the Table. And now we're going to go live to an interview with Nick Carson, who is a genderqueer trans femme educator in NAM and also used to be a presenter here at 3CR. Hi, Nick. Thanks for joining Tuesday Breakfast this morning. Thanks for having me. So, Nick, you've been involved with MESCJ, the Melbourne Educators for Social and Environmental Justice. Can you tell us and our listeners a bit about this group? Yeah, they're a group of people that are mostly organising workshops um, by educators talking about all kinds of different elements of education um, with a social and environmental justice focus. Wow, that sounds great. And so you just had a workshop recently about constructing and deconstructing gender in the classroom. Can you tell us about the workshop? It sounded incredible. I'm so sad that I missed out on it. Yeah, it was it was quite good. Um, there were some high school teachers there, some university tutors, um, uh, yeah, a range of, of different kinds of educators, um, some people that run workshops, um, 
Yeah. Yeah, we we got together and talked about, kind of went through a bit of a 101 of like, how does gender operate within the classroom and what is a trans and gender diverse student or learner's experience of learning um, or or of school. Mm -hmm. Um, And then jumped into thinking a bit more deeply and critically about um, what we might do to deconstruct the construction of this Western patriarchal um, gender, binary gender system. Right, and that sounds like it's such an important topic, and as a tutor myself, um, I often notice that some students are not as comfortable contributing. Um, they're often people of colour, trans and gender diverse students or students for whom English is a second language. So you can really see uh, power and politics playing out in the classroom. And you're also a tutor at RMIT. I was wondering, have you found this uh, to be true in your experience? And, and did you discuss how to address that in the workshop? Yeah, I think it's really... Um, like, it's something that really... Once you start talking about gender in a in an actually intersectional way, so not just talking about patriarchy and the way that patriarchy operates between binary genders, like between men and women, um, and that this situation that many of us are familiar with where men are in a dominant position and women are supposed to be subordinate to men um, under this patriarchal um, gender relations. Um, once you start talking beyond just patriarchy and basic feminism, and you start introducing, well, how does how does patriarchy intersect with race? How does it, how does it intersect with colonisation? How does it intersect with the experience of trans and gender diverse people who don't uh, identify with the gender they were assigned at birth? then things start getting obviously more complicated because it's not as simple as patriarchy. Like, it's not the only thing that's operating within this society here in so-called Australia. There's a lot more going on to it than just patriarchy. So I think um, some people definitely struggle to juggle all the elements in there head. I think especially if you're not familiar with um, other other dynamics um, like um, race and colonisation um, and capitalism um, then it kind of sort of requires that you have a basic understanding of these separate elements in a way before sort of assembling them yeah um yeah but not always like people um you know often also understand it as an overall system especially if you have some sort of experience of transgressing gender norms under this western colonial capitalist patriarchal binary gender system which we all um, have some kind of experience of transgressing gender norms and being policed 
for that, having our genders split. Um, you know, where we're not the ideal man and we're not the ideal woman. None of us are, really, in every sense. Um, so we all somewhere have an experience of how this gender system operates to um, construct our identities as um, men and women. Yeah. So, yeah. And you're right about this idea that it has to be addressed in a holistic way. Um, Bell Hooks talks about this idea of the learning community, that we need to build community in the classroom around openness and intellectual rigour and how that can have the power to subvert the classroom's politics of domination. Do you consider a similar approach in terms of cultivating a learning community that could therefore be safer for the LGBTIQA plus people? Yeah, um, that was something that came... That, um, well, and that some activities that we worked on quite specifically to try and look at, okay, so what is like a trans and gender diverse student's experience of, of learning environments? What does that look like? And then we came up with like a sort of a list of things that happen. So segregation based on the gender you were personally assigned at birth, um, internalization of gender norms, um, the sort of incessant, unending gendered expectations that are placed on almost every element of, of how you're supposed to interact with the teacher, how you're supposed to interact with other learners. Um, and we looked at what can we do to address all of these things. And when you start breaking it down at that level, it really requires that you move beyond the classroom and look at what are the relationships of the students and the teachers outside of the, the learning environments. What are the relationships? How do parents and family factor into this? Um, how does the surrounding community around the, the school or the learning institution, what's going on there, what's going on in broader society? Um, because it requires of of a, one one thing that we looked at as an example was like language and concepts and understanding that it's actually incredibly important that teachers and educators understand um, about these things about gender and the experiences of trans and gender diverse students and part of that understanding is knowing about words that exist to describe um different kinds of genders and describe the experiences of students that don't identify with the gender they were coercively find at birth. And that kind of stuff doesn't necessarily get taught um, to teachers and educators when it, you go through formal um, edu education training. And it doesn't necessarily get taught within education institutions and schools, like within the staff cohort. There's not much professional development mm. um, uh, training that's out there. So those kinds of things, if we're really to address them, um, does require a more sort of um, societal and communal um, community approach um, that involves more than just the educator operating on what they've been told to do within that classroom. Yeah, absolutely. 
Nick, there's so much I'd like to ask you. This is a really huge topic, but we'll have to wrap it up there. Um, thank you so much for your time this morning and good luck with, uh, with your work in this area. That's all right. Thanks very much for having me. Cheers. So that was Nick Carson, a genderqueer transfer educator in NAM. We will not negotiate with minor state of title government or anyone on, on our culture, on, on our land. You know, if people say, oh, you're going to finish up with nothing, well, then so be it. But at least our hearts will tell us that we did not sell out our country and our culture and heritage for a few scungy dollars. Subscribe to 3CR so that your dollars support Indigenous voices and the struggle for land justice. For Aboriginal people, the greatest grief of all is seeing the country destroyed. And somewhere along the line, we have to realise that we don't actually have the right to do that. That nothing we've ever done has given us the right to do that. Now, you know where I stand on this, because I'm so simple-minded, I think we've just got to admit that this is an Aboriginal country. Just do it. What we're dealing with here is a total lack of respect for the law. Tune in to Done By Law. An informal and irreverent look at the law. Critical insights and analysis from diverse community perspectives. Done By Law. 6pm Tuesdays. If you want to hear us slam the atomic industry, then tune into the radioactive show on 3CR, 10am Saturdays. VCR are selling kefir Palestinian scarves in support of the last factory that produces them in Hebron, Palestine. All profits will be donated to the reconstruction efforts in Gaza and support Palestinian industry. These are traditional scarves available in red and black or you can choose from a modern design. Go to 3cr.org.au slash shop to buy online or drop into the station during business hours. Welcome back to Tuesday Breakfast on 3CR. Oh, my mic was not anywhere near my face. Welcome back to Tuesday Breakfast on 3CR. Um, We are going to hear from our favourite girl, Sampa the Great, now with her song Revolution from Sampa the Great Mixtape. We play the rap. Shit, we'll be telling about. 
Seriously give information that black people are a people of rhythm and spirit, so I also give inspiration. And that was Sampa the Great with Revolution from her mixtape. So excited. We're seeing her in a few weeks, babe. Yes, we are. Mm-hmm. Well, when is it? Like, I don't know, but it's sold yeah. out, so it doesn't even matter. Yeah, right. And, and it's for <laughs> her new album, and she's going to be incredible, as she mm-hmm. always is. Just love her. Love, love her energy. I'm really looking forward to her Black Girl Magic album. Uh, video because it's got a lot of people that I know, so it's it's just basically a video full of young black girls, um, and they're all from Melbourne. And I've seen a snippet of it, gorgeous. So I'm really looking forward to it. Thanks so much, Sampo, for always um, yeah, uh, putting us first. Um, in the studio um, with us today we have Eric Lai, um, Lee. Sorry, Eric Lee is a Rise member and is the support services and food bank coordinator at Rise. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. Um, for those who don't know, our government is planning on cutting income support for over 7,000 asylum seekers. Before we get into the politics, can you tell us what type of income support is at risk and the services it provides to the community? Yeah, so when an asylum seeker... Well, when for asylum seekers, the welfare support system is a bit different because it's funded by the Department of Immigration mm-hmm. instead of the Department of Human Services. So let's say um, for people with um, for for people on certain types of um, permanent visas or see, who have citizenship, then mm-hmm. they are eligible for um, Centrelink welfare payment. But that money is funded by the Department of Human Services, uh-huh. whereas for asylum seekers, the money is also delivered by Centrelink, but is funded by the Department of Immigration. Um, and pretty much it's 89% of the Centrelink payment yep. depend on who you are as well. Let's say if you are... if you happen to be a permanent a permanent resident or a citizen who are eligible for youth allowance then it will be 89% of the youth allowance mm. payment and you i think all of us already know how under the poverty line and how outdated the centering regular centering payment is and this is like 89% mm. only and that is like also 89% of rent assistance as well and a lot of asylum seekers who are pretty much the the way the government the way immigration want to do is to further degree, decrease support and to drive asylum seekers into the point where they will be forced to sign a paper yeah. to self-deport themselves. So yeah. a lot of asylum seekers actually have not have any uh, have not been receiving any welfare payment for a long time but mm. now they are rolling this into a much larger scale. Yeah. Um, and say an asylum seeker may be not eligible, maybe not, maybe having their payment cut off because of either they have got to a stage of their 
case where centrally decided nope i'm going to cut you off and they would be living with absolutely no income absolutely no housing and to the point where to the point where it's mess around with their mind yeah. and even though it's not safe to go back to their country right. they would still that a lot of then at that point a lot of service providers people from the refugee mm. industry and from the um, community industry mm. would tell them one by one to maybe you should go home mm. maybe it's better at home even though if they go back they'll be killed or if they go back there will be a really massive threat to their well-being right. yeah and with this income support cause so it's not new start allowance or any of those what's what's it called it's called um status resolution support services and even though it's being is delivered by centrelink is actually not all centrelink would know what it is so oh. there are only about four centrelinks in the whole victoria who know what it is and three of them i can remember on top of my mind are the broad meadows centrelink um Broadmeadows, Sunshine and Dandenong. So let's say if you live in an area that is far away from all of these three regions, you would have to travel really far away for your initial assessment and also sometimes you have follow up appointments or assessment that you have to go to. Um and even when you ring up um and for people who receive SISS support payment as well, you also have to report your income and they definitely didn't wanna, don't want to make anything easy. So you know how nowadays you can report online? Um, asylum seekers on SISS payment has always have to report via phone. Oh, and and when you think about how long um, those lines are as well, mm-hmm. and how long because for me because I'm I'm on um, a new start allowance and just getting to uh, you know speak to somebody it could be like an hour an hour and a half and when you finally reach somebody they don't always have the answers and they put you through to another line so you just think about all those like you know complications all those steps that need to be um, reached before you can actually even you know get to a human being it's just it's so stressful and yeah exactly and and i you know i have i have the privileges of like a citizenship and knowing that i'm i'm protected so i can't imagine you know um what asylum seekers go through and it's only 247 dollars per week so yeah around about if you are say if you're on youth allowance is even less Mm. Because they always think that young people don't need as much money. Even yeah. when you are like in similar situation, like you have to pay rent. If say if there's a child refugee um, in the community, you, they will still be expected to pay rent. They will still be expected to pay all the other living expenses. Wow. Like if they live with their family, then their f- whole family will mm. look after that. But if they live by themselves, then they still have to worry about that part, but mm. in, it's just that their payment will be yeah. even less. And when you think about where the payment goes to, like casework support, assistance in finding housing, um, access to torture and trauma counselling, because um, th- these things are listed in a Guardian article that um, hopefully we'll share on our Facebook page. But when you think about 
the money going to all these crucial services and that's being taken away like what would that do to somebody yeah oh sorry i forgot to explain another part so the department of immigration would um they can they contract out their small like they contract out contractors to do to help them do SRSS service so um um the two that i can remember is aims and life without barriers so when a person who receive SISS no when a person who would like to get SISS payment they would have to go to either of these mm. two agency and it was also previously with red cross as well they would have to go through this agency and get um the paperwork done and then they will submit it to immigration and immigration will have a final say Mm. And then if immigration approve then they will get the support payment and also these agencies are also paid to support them with things like counseling um casework and that kind of stuff. Mm. But what usually happen is a lot of the services are not well delivered or not delivered properly. Mm. And yeah. And so um say it's like a settlement service provider has to decide whether your el- like how is the eligibility decided um i think well you have to prove to immigration that um you are in financial hardship um so a lot of people who are on SISS may not have also don't have um work right and so and but they still have to prove that they are in financial hardship and sometimes immigration would reject their application and then they have to um gather extra document to support their case mm. which is really stressful given the situation um and so even with this little bit of money a lot of the time um people from the refugee industry and from the community service industry mm. who claim that they are providing support and housing to asylum seekers the actual accommodation that they provide is there's i can't think of any other words other than disgusting yeah and no i don't think anyone would accept those accommodation if they are not in that situation right. and even then these people are still forcing asylum seekers to pay more than what they can afford for the for the accommodation and you know how the people tend to give a recommended um rental um assistance uh, um oh. as in say people recommend that only you should only spend 30% of your income towards rent but with these agencies they actually ask asylum seekers to pay more than that mm. and a lot of the time it drive asylum seekers to homelessness because so there's no cap put on it they can decide yeah they would decide that's so messed up yeah and uh, if and they have uh, there has been a lot of cases where these agency as well also push asylum seekers into homelessness mm. and what if someone's studying full time are they still eligible um we have had members who have their welfare um cut because they are studying full time so as a consequence they have to pull out of the course even when they are really close to finishing mm-hmm. but they have to pull out the the course and they have to find employment and for asylum seekers it's even harder to find employment because 
most places will refuse to employ anyone who are on bridging visas, mm. which um, most asylum seekers would be on. Right. Yeah. And when does this process go into effect? When will the government start uh, climbing down? They have said that they will start around about the start of, so pretty much this month, um, which um, we expect that there will be a lot of members um, at RISE who will be coming in and asking for assistance with employment. Um, and that means we have to... Um, there would be a lot of demands in, um, even more demands in the support services that we provide. Mm. Um, and we also know that there will be many more cases of people um, who have um, deteriorated mental health and um, self-harm and some horrible stuff like that. Yeah, yeah. And um, before we let you go, can you quickly tell us about... Rise and how people can get in touch with Rise. Um, so Rise is a is one of the first. Oh, Rise is actually the first organization in Australia that um, is a welfare organization for refugees and asylum seekers that is run by that is also run by refugees and asylum seekers and ex-detainees. And so that was makes RISE unique. Mm. Everyone who are involved in the decision-making process has to be asylum seekers, refugees and ex-detainees. Um, we don't receive, we refuse to receive any kinds of um, government, um, state and federal um, funding, as well as other fundings that are from maybe corporates that are directly involved in the detention industry as well as including um, places like mining industry and that kind of stuff. Mm. Thank you so much, Eric, for coming on and and explaining all that because it's just, it's a lot to take in. So I can't imagine what someone who's, you know, faced trauma and potentially facing prosecuting if they, um, prosecution if they return back is going through. So, um, yeah, we do appreciate you coming in and, and helping us understand it. Actually, sorry, I forgot to read our statement. Is it okay? If I read yeah, it? of course. Um, so um, I have a paragraph statement that Rice has written um, about this, and it says, Refugees who are in the community living well below the poverty line already. So the current move will put us in deeper strife, such as increased mental health issues, homelessness, and ultimately we will be coerced to self-deport. Yeah, and I think um, what I... And also one thing that I would like to say that I know that a lot of, pe- a lot of people working in the refugee industry will use this as an opportunity to raise funds for themselves and most of this money will not go towards refugees and asylum seekers. Well, and this, in this case, most of this money will not go to asylum seekers. And that's what's even more sickening. Because in a way, this is also an opportunity to give the refugee industry more income. Mm. And strengthen their industry. Yeah, because when you think about administration and all the um, people that need to get paid before it directly reaches... Uh, Um, So, yeah, that's definitely a concern. Thank you so much, Eric. Thank you for having me.
And we just spoke to Eric um, Lai, a RISE member and the support services and food bank coordinator at RISE about the government's plan to cut income support from asylum seekers. This interview and others will appear as a podcast episode on our 3CR Tuesday breakfast page. Um, and we will share uh, Rice's statement as well as details for um, our listeners. Uh, and there's also, uh, I think they have a donation drive as well, and they have a food bank. So there's always things for us in the community to contribute. Um, we would like to play the um, the Rise Refugee video about the stolen wealth gains as well. Um, Ramesh, who is the founder of Rise, has asked that we play it on air. So we were going to hit play on that now. Um, and if people want to share this video themselves, you can go to the Rise Refugee Survivors and Ex-Detainees Facebook page, um, and it's there as one of the pinned posts. Mm. And there are also um, two videos. One is um, a statement in Urdu, and the other is a statement in Arabic as well. We'll be playing the English version today. The stolen wealth games is merely another cheap gimmick used to whitewash the realities and bloody histories of British colonialism across six continents. Australia covers up colonial occupation and genocide by hosting events like the stolen wealth games which has no meaning. Only as a reminder that all countries were at one stage colonised by the British or have had their wealth stolen by British imperialism. Anyone coming to participate in the Stolen Wealth Games or going to watch is undermining our ancestors, our community, our people, our justice. They are also complicit in the torture and indefinite detention of refugees. In Australian run, onshore and offshore detention camps. And over 200 years of genocide and ongoing oppression. Australia is a crime scene. Colonial theft, disposition and genocide are no reason to celebrate. And as such, we call for all participating nations, athletes, artists and fans, to boycott the games and end the colonial occupation and oppression in Australia, as well as the systemic abuse against our communities. The illegal occupation of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people's land has resulted in genocide, attempted dispossession and constant discrimination of our peoples to this day. This is not a place to play your game and celebrate colonial unity. Our community faces torture and abuse every day. While you are jumping up and down in Queensland are the stolen wealth gains. We encourage people to take responsibility for their own communities. And organize actions at embassies and contact activists from participating nations. And publicly pressure athletes and artists to pull out of the games. This systemic discrimination and concerted oppression of Aboriginal people must end today. Do you choose to end colonization, occupation, systemic abuse and discrimination? Or do you choose to post yourself on a billboard, dance or wrap a flag around yourself at the Stolen Wealth Games? Where sovereignty has never been ceded. Every time you win a medal, you are winning a medal for colonization, occupation, genocide, systematic abuse and discrimination.
Boycott the stolen wealth games today and end the colonial joke. Remember apartheid? It's been happening in this country for the last 200 years. No games on the stolen land. No games while our community is being tortured and abused in Australia's detention centres. Deal with the root of the crisis and act now. This is an international crisis. Boycott the stolen wealth games and sanction Australia. This one. So that was a video made by RISE, Refugees, Survivors and Ex-Detainees. And I'll just read the blurb. Um, they are saying that there must be no games on stolen land, no games while our community is being tortured and abused in Australia's detention centres. There is no unity through genocide, occupation and detention, torture, abuse and murder. Um, so as I said, if you would like to watch that video um, or share it, it is on the RISE Facebook page. And I believe now we are going to a song. Um, George, this one's for you. This is Sunny Duet by No Name, featuring The Mind. You're back on Tuesday Breakfast on 3CR, and I think that is the end of the show. That's all we have time for. Um, you will hear Accent of Women in a few minutes' time. Enjoy your Tuesday. Good luck going back to work, those of you who had four days off. Mm. And, and for those who are tuning in now, um, shame on you, but also um, <laughs> just going through, maybe we can just quickly uh, touch on who we interviewed um, so first up, Lauren, you had, the, had an interview, didn't you? Yes, we had the privilege of having Sonia Law, the Manager of Mental Health and Disability Advocacy at Legal Aid, come into the studio. We love a good studio guest to talk about how the NDIS is failing Legal Aid's clients. Yeah, that was such a good interview to actually understand the way the system operates. I didn't mm -hmm. know any of that. Mm -hmm. um, and then I spoke to Lee Carney from the Human Rights Law Centre about some re recent proposals to changing, um, to reforming marriage equality uh, to better suit trans people so they don't have to choose between marriage and living, uh, having the, uh, their birth certificate acknowledge their true gender. Uh, then I also spoke with Nick Carson, who's a genderqueer trans femme educator, um, who just ran a workshop about constructing and deconstructing gender in education and what we can do to dismantle oppressive gender systems towards creating a safer learning space for the LGBTQIA community. Yeah. And after that... And I spoke with um, Eric Lai, um, who is a RISE member and is also the support services and food bank coordinator, coordinator at RISE, and we talked about the... Um, the cutting of income support um, from asylum seekers, approximately 7,000, are currently at risk. And it looks like that um, the measures are about to start soon. And um, we also gave out information about RISE, who do amazing work, who are self-funded, who um, uh, everybody on the staff, um, the core members are all from a refugee, asylum seeker or detention um, uh, ex-detention background, so that's really important for representation. 
And yes, thanks for tuning in and we will see you next Tuesday.